The following program is paid for by Rudy Wealth Management. Good morning, and welcome to Paul Rudy's On the Money. You're invited to be part of today's show. Call 356-9397. Opinions and views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. And now, Paul Rudy's On the Money. Good Tuesday morning, everybody. This is Paul Rudy with Paul Rudy's On the Money Radio Show. I'm here with a couple of my regular guests, Dr. Fred Gertz and Certified Financial Planner Professional and Retirement Income Certified Professional David Rudy is calling in. David, are you with us? Yep, I'm here. Good. Larry Isabel, thanks, Fred, for joining me today, as usual. Slackers, Fred. Those young guys are slackers, Fred. I knew we didn't need to be as worried as they said. So I say. Uh, so I have David and Dr. Fred with me. You can call in with your questions at 217-356-9397 or text us on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line at 351-5357. It's important to recognize that past performance is not an indication of future results. You should not make any investment decisions without first consulting your own financial advisor and conducting your own research and due diligence. Wow, Fred, is all I can say. I mean, <laughs> so it went, the reason I say that is as of yesterday, the broad U.S. market on a total return basis turned positive. Uh, there's a lot of indices are still lagging. Small companies are still behind, uh, have a ways to go before they reach where they were at the beginning of the year. Same with pretty much about everything uh, other than the broad U.S., more growth-oriented. Uh, international is still uh, not quite as close to making uh, you know, b- all back the decline of the year so far. But Dr. Fred Gertz and I were talking before the show. We were both kind of looking at each other like, I would have (laughs) never imagined uh, seeing what we're seeing. And I'm wondering kind of what your take on that is. It seems to be almost a a relativity kind of thing with time compression. We uh, uh, started, uh, I do a report about the Illinois economy, and February actually was very strong. So uh, even though we knew about the virus in, in February, uh, there was no particular evidence in uh, the state of Illinois that was doing any damage. And then we had this tremendous uh, uh, shutdown effect on the whole economy. And we went from uh, uh, a relatively uh, robust economy uh, after expansion for 10 years or so. Everything seemed to be going relatively well to a, a catastrophe kind of setting. And the, and the uh, market obviously went down uh, uh, in response to that. So we had this tremendous decline within uh, – Two or two and a half months, we're back to where we started in terms of the equity market. The problem is we're not, not back to where we started in terms of the economy. So the real question is the kind of um, a lack of congruence between what's happening in the equity markets and what's happening in the in the real economy. And to a certain extent, I think it's uh, there's no one uh, explanation. And again, uh, it would be better to have an explanation about what was going to happen beforehand rather than after. Right. It's easy to talk about. Uh, why it happened, it's uh, much more difficult to talk about why it's going to happen. So, again, there are various uh, um, ideas. Obviously, the Fed has been very important in providing uh, huge amounts of infusion of um, of um, reserves. Uh, we also have a zero interest rate, which means that uh, the equity premium is the full amount of what you get back on your, on your uh, yeah. equity portfolio because uh, what you're waiting against is 
basically a return of zero in the in the other markets. So that's another thing. And then I, I think there is some uh, genuine optimism now. Again, I think it's probably overly optimistic, but I think it's not as the, the uh, people's uh, look into the future is not as dire as it was uh, a month ago or so. Maybe there's no reason we can't ultimately get back from an economic standpoint to where we were. We seem yeah. to have had things going pretty well. Um, I just, you know, a lot of people think that it might be asset inflation induced by right. all the stimulus and the uh, money, uh, the Fed's buying bonds, for example, yeah. uh, buying even corporate bonds, which some people some people suggest is illegal. I don't know. I'll leave that. That's yeah. out of my, my pay grade. But it's certainly, I think, unprecedented. There'd be no real reason. I can't see a reason why the Fed would back off now. I mean, maybe right. if the dollar were caving in, it might. Yeah, we'll, we'll get not. into the, the same kind of, um, of uh, dilemma we had back in uh, 2010 or so. When do we ease out of, uh, of uh, the, the monetary stimulus? And, and again, that's going to be a a decision to come in the future, but it's uh, problematic. There is one other thing, though, that I think that uh, uh, people are beginning to realize that the uh, I view the uh, the initial um, kind of intervention, both in terms of uh, sending out money and also the Federal Reserve is kind of a, a life support to keep things going during a crisis. But now we're back into the era where it's basically more kind of a stimulus. You want to stimulate the economy, make it grow again. And the problem here is that uh, – Every firm is not the same. Uh, for example, you, you lose some of your um, some of your subsidy from the government if you don't keep all your employees on on board. But the problem is that there are many firms that simply, uh, if they're going to be viable in the future, they can't keep all their employees. Right. So you have this kind of dilemma: Do you want to maintain the, uh, the situation now, which is not sustainable in the long run, or at some point we have to bite the bullet and realize it? Some firms are going to grow because of the crisis. Other firms are going to, uh, uh, if not go out of business, going to have to restructure substantially. And, and trying to keep all those firms uh, fully uh, staffed with all their f- former employees is simply not a, a viable action, option, option in the long run. Yeah, so eventually, uh, and that always becomes the question, is difficulty. You know, at first you get into these crises, people demand a lot of cash, literal, literal cash and savings. And the Fed definitely came in and increased the money supply to do all those things. So demand for money's been high. The Fed's been accommodative. Um, I was reading something, I think it was by Ed Yardeni. Uh, he was showing how the personal savings rate's gone some, from something like 8% to over 30%. And in his, what he, he suggested, or was maybe suggesting possibly, uh, was, well, we've had a couple trillion dollars thrown into the economy from the Fed. That was his number. And then we've had two million, two trillion dollars of kind of suppressed or deferred demand, and so maybe there's this four trillion dollars of pent up stimulus and demand, and that's yeah, well, maybe may a little bit. I think that's a little bit overestimated, but there's a lot of money coming out. Sure. But we have two things happening: uh, money is coming out from the uh, federal government, which is not from the Fed. It's uh, you know the six hundred dollar checks, right, right. support for uh, various institutions, things of that sort. That's real money going out. And then in addition to that, we have the, the underlying, uh, undergirding support from the, the Fed. Uh, and at the same time, uh, there's been very few places to spend the money. So right. uh, many people, even though they've had their lives disrupted, uh, they haven't necessarily had a big decline in income because a combination of either their, their uh, 
keeping their job and working at home or, or unemployment plus the the supplement from the government has meant that incomes haven't fallen nearly as much as economic activity. And so basically incomes have gone along a pace and uh, there's been very few places to spend money. Right, exactly. He even and showed so that's like that's not like you decide to save. It's you, you find you can't consume. Right. So. And then he even showed a chart of personal uh, personal incomes rising. Uh, and he talked about that effect, you said. I mean, uh, a lot of people kept their job, but even if they kept their job, they got some stimulus checks, et cetera. Well, it's interesting. You know, we've, I've, I'll just say I have. You really haven't. I'll put, I won't put words in your mouth, but I've been suggesting for the last three or four shows that if you were, uh, if you found in late March that, you know, maybe you had a portfolio that really wasn't aligned with your ability to stay in that portfolio, this is, what I've been calling your get out of jail sort of free card, and now for lots of people, this is a get out of jail free period. And, yeah, and it, it turned out though that if they did that two months ago, uh, getting out of jail wasn't free. Well, no, <laughs> and, that's, and, a, that's the problem with, uh, in a sense, market timing. You never know, and this is more uh, more dramatic than ever. Uh, David has talked about this several times that. Uh, uh, it's not like uh, you, you time the market now and then wait six months. Oh no, and, no, no! Uh, no. Uh, it's but the uh, uh, here you had to get it just right if you were timing the market within uh, a day or two in many cases. Yeah. That's, that's simply beyond the ability of anyone to do. Well, it's impossible, and I think the most recent activity shows that. Uh, mine was more of a point of, you know, if you didn't sell at the lows, but you know that you are in a allocation for the rest of your life that isn't really doesn't match up with your ability to stay in it that strength offered people an opportunity to permanently restructure. Yeah, and if they didn't do it, this is still even better. Well, that's what, I, that's what I mean. And, and so often, in fact, for some people, I follow that dollar cost averaging yeah. uh, reverse style. In other words, you don't have to make all those decisions today. Uh, you know, a few weeks back, you, you, you sell a little bit. Uh, a week later, you sell a little bit. And, uh, this week, you sell a little bit. Uh, but it's just an important lesson, and, and, and one of the things we're going to talk about today is rebalancing, because I think that's, I think David wrote for our uh, News Gazette, kind of our 101, kind of finance 101 yeah. issues coming up this Sunday about rebalancing, and, and we were re actively rebalancing. It did give an opportunity if, if people didn't freeze like a deer in headlights, and you use that sharp decline as a as an opportunity for, for people that wanted to stay within their asset allocation, their lifetime asset allocation. Um, what it would have had you doing is buying all the things that weren't doing so well, and those things have just, you know. So it's interesting. I want to talk to David about this in a bit. It strikes me that we're now rebalancing again, Fred, if you right. can believe it. So yeah, you, you said this is kind of a condensed period right. uh, where we were rebalancing because of the decline. And a lot of the stuff that we rebalanced into now has gone up so much that right. we're finding that many of our clients are out of balance now to the other side. Yeah, it's a different I've never, world. I've never done rebalancing within two, right. two month period. Well, just to illustrate, uh, typically this isn't the real uh, uh, guideline, but the, the kind of, uh, of uh, intuitive way of looking at a recession is two, two quarters of uh, negative growth where the economy goes down. Well, they did, yesterday they just declared that we're in a recession and we yeah. haven't had two quarters yet, so people are acting uh, very quickly. So it's, it's, a, it's a different world. I, I think I, I probably said this uh, you know, 20 times over the last 10 years or so, but uh, 
it's not always this easy. Uh, we we said it in uh, after two thousand seven to two thousand nine, we had a, you know a huge decline and it was back in a year or two. Uh, I said that's not typical. You don't always recover in a year or two. Well, if you don't recover in a year or two, you don't recover in uh, five weeks either. So this is not a a typical kind of recovery. So we have to be uh, at least prepared to have some long-term hard times in terms of downturns not bouncing right back within a matter of weeks. Is there a risk that we are, by having so much intervention by the Federal Reserve, basically what people call that put, you know, underneath the market, uh, they're only going to let it, nobody's ever said it's official or anything, but there's this perception developing and has developed for quite a long time now that they used to call it the uh, Greenspan put, you know, the Federal Reserve. In other words, hey, he won't let things get out of get too bad out of control. Is there is is there always, you know, you eventually have to pay the piper if we if we kind of distort the market. And, and those are my words. I and mean, yeah. maybe we're not distorting it. Maybe that's not the best. But if we're intervening and trying to coddle the economy and coddle the stock market, could we potentially build something then where we have no real answers for? Yeah, I think it's the uh, the old analogy. Uh, if you uh, never bend, you're going to break sometime. So the idea of keeping things the same artificially uh, may be good in t- if you have a crisis situation and uh, runs on banks and things of that sort. But eventually, uh, you have to weed out the uh, you know, wheat from the chaff, and some things should grow and other things not. And, and an example would be in, in Japan tried to keep everything alive after their downturn in the in the 90s, and the, so they had the you know, zombie banks and zombie everything, and that, that's maybe good for a, a few weeks, a month, a year even, but you can't go for decades uh, during that. So at some point, you either have to make adjustments or the whole thing's going to uh, uh, break, not not just spend. Maybe maybe this particular period is a little more sensible than some in, in the past to the extent that it's like a national um, – like hurricane, uh, right. the word's escaping me, kind of a, uh, a natural disaster. Uh, and maybe we'll look back and say, well, it should have been obvious. Uh, we had a strong economy. We just closed it down for a while when you reopen. Right. If you give it enough fuel through accommodation from the Fed, perhaps, that you sh- maybe should have seen it coming. Yeah, but we're going to get all kinds of people now saying this is purely because of what yeah. the Federal Reserve did, not right. the potential earnings of these companies. Yeah, there's all kinds of... Uh, of uh, sayings about this, but the <clears throat> one that uh, is generally applied to <clears throat> banking, but uh, uh, could be applied more broadly, <clears throat> is if uh, you have a banking crisis, there are two kinds of banks. Uh, uh, one kind of bank is solvent but has a liquidity problem. Other banks simply are never going to make it. So what you want to do is to find a way to uh, phase out the, the, the zombies and, and actually support the good good side. That's the, the problem we face now, but it's not easy to do in real life. Uh, again, uh, often the, pl- <clears throat> the political kinds of uh, pressure comes from the firms that are declining and probably don't have very good long-term prospects, uh, while the firms that are growing probably don't need as much help. So the help tends to go probably in the wrong direction. So it would be, it'd be uh, really um, uh, stupid now to decide we want to uh, build back our, um, our uh, airlines back to their uh, you know, January 2000 capacity right now. It doesn't make any sense to do that. So there's probably going to be some layoffs, some changes, things of that sort that are absolutely necessary. That's what it seems to me like. I don't know why I feel this way, but there's there's this next round of layoffs uh, to come. In other words, 
when everybody starts reconciling, I've talked to a number of small businesses. I think I mentioned this last yeah. time. They're saying, boy, once we kind of get through July or August, you know, our business is still down 30%. We don't need as many people manufacturing and, and these yeah. things. And some of them have said that it's, it's inevitable that they're going to be laying off people. Yeah. Uh, so in some ways it seems like, yeah, well, it took the PPP money and as long as that was money good, but it, for many businesses, um, that doesn't change their outlook for the next several years. Some of them think they won't get back to their old sales for one or yeah, two this or is three right. years. I, mean, I guess we're dwelling on the negative now, but yeah. uh, <clears throat> for Champaign uh, and Urbana, uh, uh, I've seen uh, huge amounts of, of student housing being built and still under construction, and I, I can't believe that they're not going to have some major problems in the next year or so. But, you're, but, but maybe, maybe what you're saying is, yes, you can always look around and find uh, anecdotal things that would depress you, but you have to step back and look at the big picture and say, we still have a very vibrant national economy and an accommodative Fed. You don't probably want to fight that. And yeah, get, but the, get the other side of that is, though, you, you can't necessarily, you know, if you build uh, 200% uh, housing for 200% of the potential occupants, at some point that has to adjust. So, again, the adjustment is going to have to come, and it's not – it's bad for the people who have to adjust. It's not necessarily bad for the economy. And that happens whether you're in a recession or not. Right. I mean, it, 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 it always seems it's human nature to, hey, look, you know, all my friends are building houses and making money and flipping them. And the next thing you know, every, you know, just yeah. because it's that herd mentality uh, that takes over and we, and we tend to, capital tends to outrun yeah. itself, right? Uh, yeah. The um, other uh, thing that I've heard people say, which is kind of, I never thought about it this way, but the question is, um, you know, why do you have an equity premium? Why, why, why do stocks yield more than bonds? And the answer is because you're taking risks. So part of the equity premium is you're taking the risk. So there's going to be some uh, – it's, it's not all upside risk. It's downside as well. So some of the, the equity premium is going to be taken back now in terms of, uh, of adjustments. Of course. And, and, and I don't know why that seems so simple to me. The bondholder basically doesn't take any risk. Okay, yeah, if you yeah. buy corporate bond, there's yeah. there's technically there's some small risk that you'll have some some problems, but relative to what the shareholder, the share owner, the the partial owner of the great companies of America and the world, their returns are clearly, I'm going to say in the near term, highly unpredictable, uh, and they want to be compensated for that. But there's no reason to think that you couldn't have a 40-year return. Uh, in fact, Japan is kind of highlighting the fact that. There, there's no given that if you hold a broad stock market index for 30 years that you're going to no. have a good outcome. It, it's possible that you won't. But, so. probably, but, but the other thing is simply you can't expect to reap the uh, equity premium and not, not, not uh, uh, bear the risk of uh, having the, the bad, bad side of things happen. And the risk is that, to me, that unpredictability of how and when I'm going to get my returns and they can be right. really horrible. And uh, and it doesn't always play nice. And so, as opposed to buying the being the bondholder of a company who's in a pretty good position and isn't is taking very little risk, so they shouldn't expect very much return. The only way a company could raise capital uh, by selling shares is to say, wait a minute, I can get six percent in your bond historically. Right. Uh, you got to do a lot better than that to get me to put up with the unpredictability of of earnings and your stock prices etc well it's it's a it's interesting times and i wonder how many it happened so fast i hope a lot of investors didn't have time to make right. to make uh mistakes 
But it was pretty emotional uh, towards that third week in March. And, you know, and if you sold anywhere near there, it, this train has moved so fast. It, 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 every time you thought, well, I'll just wait for it to pull back, it yeah. really never gave you the chance. And that's the yeah. markets do that. They're cruel. They and also the, make it tough. the other side of things. It's all, when do you get back in? So if you didn't get back in, uh, you've lost. A, and that's a, a pressure lot. cooker, right? That's a pressure. We're going to go to Andrew on line two. Andrew, welcome to Paul Rudy's On The Money. Hi, Paul. I wanted to tell you both thank you a lot. I, I appreciate the time to, to listen to your to your show um you know in a time of potential storm it's just that that calm that you guys present even with challenges um it's just i want to tell you guys thank you i wish more people in this world would have this approach of long term i heard you make a statement about the housing and you know i can see that being in champagne but we don't know what's going to happen from the standpoint of the rules and the regulations on campus so Maybe they're going to go to single apartments, right? And things are going to get better. And it's it's having that person or persons or guidance like the two of you in their life to have that confidence to stay in there the long haul. So, you know, thumbs up to both you guys. I, I really appreciate it. Wow, how kind! <laughs> we have one person out there that likes us, Fred. Right. You probably have a lot that likes. I don't you. think anything else, Andrew. No, I um, continue to listen. I think that you know I, I do feel. Uh, sorry for those people who jumped out in panic and for the people who are in now they've got some really you know positive choices to take a look at it for the future and I, I continue to hope to listen to you guys more to hear about some of those choices that we all are going to have in the near future thank you both all right thank you well fred how many times have i said optimism right. is the only worldview that squares sure. with the facts and you know and again it all comes down to as i've talked so many times it's it's always Successful investors keep their heads, keep their wits about them uh, when others can't. And, you know, like I I wrote, I think it was maybe a blog I wrote about, you know, you throw a rock, you hit a problem. Um, It's, you know, my study of history is (laughs) not much is new. I mean, there's new trigger events, but strife, turmoil, uh, bitter politics. I guess that's because I'm getting older. I'm, I'm, I'm a little more able to tune that out, and I don't get surprised anymore if a, if a politician is hypocritical or says something yeah. hypocritical. Well, I well, think also uh, <clears throat> the things that had gone uh, differently, uh, so we were down 30 35%. If we'd gone down to 45% instead of up, we'd probably still be saying the same thing, basically. Oh, for sure. Uh, I think... I think with a 30-year history on this show, and you've been on it for a good part of that, I think, if anything, we've been consistent and and, 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 and a quick story. Um, quite some time ago, I used to write a monthly newsletter to my clients instead of quarterly. And after, just year after year of doing that, I quit writing the newsletter. Just I just kind of stopped. I got tired of hearing myself through my writing basically saying the same things um and i basically had a revolt <laughs> my clients hey where are our newsletters i and i would explain one after another well, i just felt like i was repeating myself and and, and 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 just coming up with different ways to say you know 50 different ways to say the same thing and the message was and evidently it, it was important to me to understand this from a human nature standpoint that's precisely what they were looking for is that consistent stable 
keep your wits about you realistic but optimistic because optimism is the only worldview that squares with the facts and as somebody who study economics for, for people to look at I'm not talking about in the last month or two uh, from an economic perspective yeah. it would strike me and, and you, you can tell me if I'm wrong but compared to 30 years ago or 60 or 90 or 20 years ago, the lot of most people are better today than it was sure. then. Not everybody. I'm talking about in the aggregate. Right. Is it just this inequality issue that – and well, I, I I'm, it, not, I'm not going down a political yeah, road most, here. But, uh, yeah, most comparisons are not uh, uh, how are you today compared to your great-grandfather in uh, 1870 or something. Uh, it, it's how, how are you compared to some idealized – Past, and I think that's the problem. The other thing which I wanted to mention here is that uh, we don't really give thanks for this very much. But uh, one thing we don't worry very much about is a, a minus one hundred percent in our investment returns. And around the world, historically, that's happened. Uh, you know, Russia, Germany, Japan, Argentina, things like that. So we have this underlying stability, I think, which gives us uh, a lot more faith. Do we take that for granted? I think so. I mean, because you're, you're only a handful of policy mistakes yeah. away from that, are we not? Well, I don't think 100 percent. I mean, I think it's more than a handful. It would be. It would take, it so would take a building over time of just yeah. heading in the wrong direction in the yeah. wrong policy. And usually probably some kind of international war or something of that sort. But I, I, I doubt we'll go down the road of Argentina or Brazil. But. The world seems to doubt that, too. Yeah. I mean, if they're willing to buy our, buy our 10-year treasuries at 0.65% and our 30-year treasury at 1.5%, is, is that a signal that says, well, U.S. has its problems, but it's yeah. the cleanest shirt in the dirty laundry? Right, and, and we seem to have more discipline, but that discipline may be breaking down. Uh, that's, it's an old story, but... Uh, if you go back to the turn of the uh, 20th century, 120 years ago, uh, who were the economic powers? And one of them was Argentina. Right. Argentina was one of the uh, uh, highest income uh, countries in the world at that time. And what they did was basically uh, spend the rest of the time dissipating that wealth by really bad policies. And again, they had a resurgence. They were doing really great during World War too, because they were selling to uh, everyone in terms of uh, commodities. And then they, again, dissipated that by very bad policies. So, again, I think we're not even close to, to that kind of uh, a breakdown. Well, I wrote an article last Sunday, or it was in the Sunday paper. I wrote it before that, um, about <laughs> titled There's No Interest in Bonds. Yeah. And, and I highlighted the fact of basically you're, if you buy a 10-year treasury uh, you're probably going to, you know, uh, the purchasing power of your money is probably going to decline by 15% yeah. over the next 10 years. And with a 30-year treasury, maybe 30%, just because yeah. the Fed isn't targeting a 2% inflation rate. And what a position investors are in today when they're trying to make investment decisions. I'm getting an essentially a negative return after taxes and inflation. And I, I, you know, I always talk about taxes being the visible robber and right. inflation being the invisible robber. Right. Um, so the days of, and I highlighted this, you know, in the late 80s, different time periods when you could get double-digit returns on your CDs or even the 7 or 8% CD, really wasn't that much different. A little no. bit. Well, actually, it was a little better. It was worse, though. I mean, in many cases, we're... 
Yeah, twelve percent inflation are getting like in the six early yeah. early eighties. Unexpected inflation. Yeah. yeah, early eighties. You might have gotten a fifteen percent CD. You lopped off a third in taxes and inflation. So for you got ten after taxes and inflation was twelve. Yeah. Uh, I think it. I think this is an ext- maybe it's always that way, but it seems to be highlighted during epic interest rate declines of what is an investor to do, um, and I. I suspect that they're looking over at the stock market, you know, and people are chasing that too. It's kind of, there is no alternative. Um, You know, maybe there's more and more people realizing, wow, bonds really never do maintain wealth very well. And contrary to what people think, um, over a 30 year retirement, your cost of living is at least gonna double, but probably triple. Uh, It turns out that ownership of the great companies of America and the world are Maybe, and I'm not talking about it's not binary one or the other, but I think sometimes we we lose track of how powerful they've been historically. Mainstream equities. Yeah. There's no there's no no facts about the future. And, and yeah, and, and things I probably will change. I have some idea, some doubts about uh, the idea of money market funds always uh, uh, never break the buck, never go below a dollar. But if you have uh, negative interest rates, and, and the only way you can get uh, above uh, uh, get a positive return is to take a longer uh, view in terms of buying things that aren't necessarily uh, really short-term kinds of uh, securities. And I think the uh, money markets probably can't be protected at, at a dollar forever. So, you know. Yeah, you look at the last 20 years for the Standard & Poor's 500 index, total return is still below 4% for the last 20 years. But, uh, well, probably bonds during that period did better if you were in longer and mid-maturities. Yeah. But you know, it's, I just feel for people right now, and I wonder what kind of mistakes are building because people will go right. from a conservative allocation to suddenly in one they're not familiar with right. and really maybe don't know, have the right expectations going in yeah. and just causing. Well, go ahead, Dave. And one of the things I always tell people is, look, and you wrote about this in your article and you just talked about it, bonds really have never been designed to be much of a return generator. And that's really not why you own bonds in the first place. You own them to dampen the volatility of your portfolio because very few people could handle an investment portfolio with 100% stock allocation or even you know, 70, 80, 90. They just psychologically could not handle that amount of fluctuation. And then for retirees too, or even just people who have a short-term need for the money, you can't put it in stocks or something that fluctuates because there's just too much uncertainty. So sometimes you know, bonds are just... I don't even want to call it equal, but sometimes I think of it that way. It's like, yeah, they are nothing, but that's better than, you know, if I need the money in a year or I'm retired and I need, you know, a source of income while the market's down, I don't want to have to, you know, I don't want to have that money exposed to stock market risk or fluctuation. So sometimes just refocusing people like, look, we're not owning bonds to, to earn a high return in the first place. We're owning them to dampen volatility and to be a source of, of, income when you need it that's not exposed to fluctuation in other words don't reach for return just because stocks have higher expected return and now that's just being magnified you know by people under you know starting to figure out they're not going to get any return on fixed income you know one might say okay well then i'll be 100 percent stocks but what you're saying is very few people need 30 uh you know uh, 70 or 80 or 90 percent in the stock market or could handle it most people don't need that type of return to drive a decent life 
because the higher your stock market exposure, the less uncertain your returns are going to be. You could have a higher expected return, but you're going to have a much more difficult time earning that return. So in other words, I could look at it as if like, well, we're not going to be 100% stock. So we have to have something to put that money in that isn't impacted by the same thing stocks are impacted by. And that turns out to be bonds and fixed income producing investments. And so it's not, to me, it's always been, what type of a return do I need to uh, have a viable retirement within within reality and reasonability. Uh, is that a word? Reasonability? I'm not so sure it is. Uh, <laughs> reasonableness <laughs> and uh, a degree of reasonableness. Let's put it that way. And so it's. I think people do get confused. They think of CDs and bonds or income. Yeah, they'll pay some interest rate, but they really don't protect purchasing power over any lengthy period of time. I think we'll go to Mark on line two. Mark, welcome Hi, to... guys. Yes. I had a question. I've heard a lot of things uh, about people taking their IRA money or 457 money and moving it into a Roth. Have you heard anything about that? And what are the pen- what is the cost of doing something like that? And uh, do you think it's a good idea? David, I'm going to push that one to you because you deal with that more and more on a daily basis. Yep. Yeah, so that's a strategy that is becoming more popular this year for a couple reasons. Um, the main reason, well, uh, actually, there's a, there's a few reasons. One is it tends to make sense to do that um, when your income is lower and you're in a lower tax bracket than normal or when you expect to take the money out from your investment accounts. So. Um, people are in that boat a lot more this year because maybe they lost their job or they're furloughed or something like that. Their income's lower. And they say, hey, one of the things I can do to take advantage of this is do a Roth conversion, which just means move money from my pre-tax retirement account over to my after-tax retirement account. Now, in that process, you're going to owe taxes on the money that you move over. But if you're paying taxes at an abnormally low rate, and avoiding them in the future because that money's going into a Roth that grows tax-free, it can be a winning proposition. Um, the other thing for retirees um, that are uh, subject to required minimum distributions, they don't have to take their required minimum distribution this year, and very few people should if they don't need that money. And so, you know, I think most people's initial reaction is, this is great, I'm going to have a lot less <laughs> taxable income this year, um, but then at second glance, sometimes you think, okay, but maybe that's going to make my income really low or put me in a lower tax bracket and I'd be better off maybe doing a Roth conversion, um, if not equal to that required minimum distribution amount, you know, up to a certain tax threshold. So, and then the third reason it's especially popular this year is it tends to be more beneficial after the market has fallen a lot because um, after huge market declines, there tends to be some sort of reversion to the mean and investment returns tend to be a little bit higher going forward. And so moving that money over, converting it while prices are depressed, hopefully leads to more tax-free growth in the Roth going forward. So those are a few reasons why it's becoming popular this year. But it's not something that you can make a blanket statement, yes, this is a good idea, or no, it's not, because it's very uh, specific to a person's individual circumstances. So it is really important to run it by your CPA or your financial advisor to see if it makes sense for your for your circumstances. 
what is the cost? What is the percentage of, of, to do something like that? Yeah, so the, I mean, the main cost to it is just that you're going to owe taxes on any amount that you transfer over from your pre-tax account to your Roth IRA. Um, and that's going to vary from person to person, just depending on your tax bracket. You know, for some people, it might be 10 or 12% if they're in a low tax bracket. For others, it could be, you know, 24, 32, 35 if they're in a high tax bracket. Now, those higher tax bracket people, it probably makes less sense to do it because that cost is higher. Um, it's, it's really it tends to be especially popular for people who might be in that 10 or 12% tax bracket, but it, it, it all just depends on, on a number of factors. And, uh, and let me add to Mark, when we talk about that cost, you have to pay that tax today that you could have deferred. You don't want to pay that out of the conversion money. You want to pay that out of a separate account. You want a hundred percent of that, uh, you know, conversion going into the Roth, all those dollars going into the Roth, and then you're going to get a tax bill that you need to pay, and you want to pay that from a separate account outside of your retirement accounts. Right. Yeah. If I moved 100000 over, it would cost me 10000 bucks. If you were in a 10% tax bracket, but if you did that, depending if you're single or married, you're probably already moving out of the 10% bracket. So you might be in the at least some of it at 12% and some of it at 15 depending if you're single or married. Right, but it also depends why your bracket will be in the future. So if your of course. future bracket's higher than it is today, it's, uh, it would still good, it's a good idea even if it's at a somewhat higher rate. So it's, it's a really, in one sense, there's not a lot of difference between a Roth and a, and a traditional IRA, but on the other hand, it's highly uh, complex about when, when it's good to make the make the change. So, uh, so and, and Fred, I think a lot of people also look down the road and think, how are we not going to have higher taxes? That's speculation, right. but that's a maybe a fourth reason why people suddenly are, there seems to be an increase in Roth conversion yeah. interest. Yeah, David yeah, probably yeah, knows yeah. more about this. Uh, I'm sure he knows more about this than I do, yeah. but I think you have to be careful when you make any kind of rollover to make sure that it doesn't, it's not treated as a withdrawal. And, and so, that, I, I, again, I don't know all the details, but you have to take some care there. Yeah, that for was sure. the biggest and, and reason I mean, that everybody's go ahead, scared Mark. because they're afraid that everybody's scared because they're afraid that the Fed and the state are going to be make a run at our IRAs and our 457s because they are out of money and they got to get some money somewhere. Is that is that a valid concern, Fred? Well, I think it's valid. A little, I mean, there is. It's not like they're going to come along and say. It used to be yours, now it's mine, but they, for example, we have this uh, uh, Medicare surcharge kind of thing on income. So there, there are ways of kind of eroding the, uh, the benefit, but I don't think they're going to take it away. Or Right. The state of Illinois, for example, could say, okay, we're going to start uh, tax, you know, taxing re retirement distributions yeah, right. from your IRA. Right. But I, I think there's a, I, I do think there are people, Mark, that are a little overly concerned that somehow... They're just going to kind of go in there and take our money. They'll do it for wealthier people by means testing, and they'll put all kinds of barriers in where they'll get a little bigger piece than they normally would have. Yeah. In regard to the idea of cost, though, I think there's very little cost in terms of the actual uh, what you have to pay right. to the uh, financial institutions and so on. It should be. should be no cost yeah. or, or low cost. Go ahead, Dave. So like for Charles Schwab, you can just journal the securities over directly from an IRA to a Roth IRA. Uh, since you're not withholding taxes, that makes that really easy. You just literally move the securities over. There's no 
buying or selling or anything going on. You're just it's a, a perfectly lateral move. Anything else, Mark? Yeah, my wife. Well, my wife's in Fidelity, and she's getting ready to retire. And uh, she's got a large sum. I'm not sure whether we're. We don't need the money right now, but I was thinking about switching it over. See if she wanted to switch it over into Roth, but because of the tax thing, we don't need the money right now. But I'm just a little bit nervous about taxes being higher later. Yeah, so that's just one of the reasons you might contemplate it. And I, I think you want to work with your financial advisor and say. Can you do some type of projection of what my tax brackets might be in the future or my taxable income might be? We're making assumptions at what rates are you know, going to remain the same. Sometimes it's a no-brainer. This is a year I'm going to be in a 10 or 12 or 15% bracket. If going in the future, I'm going to be in a much higher bracket. So you, I would sit down with either a CPA uh, to have that discussion uh, or a financial advisor that's qualified to give you that answer. And I think that will help you along your yeah. journey. And not surprising, there, there are some ads, though, that uh, tout uh, a Roth conversion as a, like a gold mine or something, and those typically are not uh, Not, not too many gold mines. I mean, there'll be, there'll be some instances, I suppose, where the kids are far more successful than the parents, and they're always going to be in a higher tax bracket, yeah. and it's kind of a lock, and then they could do it. But there's no real free lunch out there. Where some of it's built on speculation of the future. Yeah, I've lost a lot more money out of my Roth, and I have my 457. Let's change that from loss <laughs> to I've suffered a bigger temporary decline. Right. But but the yeah. reason... The well, reason, words matter. Yeah. But the reason is not because one's a Roth and one's a Correct. 457. It's because how you invested in the uh, two. Right. Structurally, the only explanation uh, for that would be it's just invested differently. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it is. I agree with you I got take out a little bit more risk with the Roth. Well, you should. I mean, you should have your highest expected return investments, right, Dave, in your Roth. Yeah, I mean, yeah, for sure. That's kind of the As a rule. rule of thumb. Yep. Okay, Mark, we appreciate your call. Thank you, sir. Thank you. All appreciate right. It. Yeah, there's just more interest this year, isn't there, Dave? Uh, you know, some of it we're spurring on on behalf of our clients, but just more questions from clients about whether it makes sense. But there's also the market yeah, timing. For sure, for sure. The market, you know, of course. if you were going to do it, you should have done it six weeks ago. And you could never get that right. So it's really a, a challenging sort of situation. Right. And uh, and then you want to understand the rules for uh, Roth accounts versus the traditional IRAs and make sure that you're, you're comfortable with the rules that it may be a number of years before you can get to that money tax-free, at least the earnings part. Uh, so, again, it's one of those things I think some people do make almost as a marketing technique is if there's some free lunch and you're missing something if you don't Roth, do a Roth conversion. Most people probably shouldn't do a Roth conversion, you know, that I meet probably aren't, wouldn't, it's borderline at best, but there are those special situations, maybe not all that special, but, the, you know, there is a group of people that ought to at least ask that question of their advisor. Should I be doing a Roth conversion? Why and why not? I think that's fair. Uh, David, you're going to do, are you doing an article on dollar cost averaging or rebalancing this for this column? Rebalance. 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 So let's do a little journey about the last, say, two months of what's going on in your world from your perspective who's out there actually doing the blocking and tackling of, I got all these families whose whose, uh, lives are in our hands. Uh, We have to make these decisions kind of just talk about the last 60 days 
Sure. So really what was happening before the market went into its big decline was, you know, the market had been going on a rally for quite some time. And to the extent possible, I try to keep our accounts in balance using cash flows in and out of the account. But when the market's really rallying or really moving quickly in one direction or the other, um, it can throw the allocation out of whack. So stocks were becoming overweight relative to their target kind of before that decline. But then what happened is the market fell so much so suddenly that almost every one of our accounts, you know, it has a specific target percentages for how much should be in stocks and how much should be in bonds. It sell um, enough to make the stock allocation below our lower threshold. So we'll let that drift up to about 5%. Um, so they would, they would be more than 5% lower than their target stock allocation. And so in March, um, we rebalanced, I rebalanced pretty much all of my clients' accounts um, just to get them back up to their target stock allocation. And, you know, that's not a market timing call. It's not something we do to enhance returns. Um, it's just something that it's a, it's more of a planning issue and a risk control issue of saying, look, our plan is built on this target allocation. We want to stick to it. We're not going to let it just randomly drift all over the place. You know, we will to a certain degree, but once it gets too far away from our target, we're going to rebalance back to that target. Well, it turns out that happened to be really good timing. As, as everyone knows, the market has rallied substantially since there, um, since then. And now I'm running into issues where people are actually over their stock allocation target. And so I'm having to rebalance to reduce the stock allocation. So I actually go in the, the opposite direction, which you mentioned on the show earlier, that it's a very unusual for that to happen that quickly in succession. And I do think it can mess with people's heads. Like, well, why are we selling from equities when, you know, the market's still down a little bit from where it was, but again, it's, it's not a market timing issue. Rebalancing is not something we do to enhance returns. It's something we do to stick to a plan and it's something we do to control the risk in your portfolio. You had that target allocation for a reason. So we're gonna we're gonna again let it drift up to us up to a point, but if it gets too far away from our targets, we need to rebalance back to the target that the plan says you should be at. And, and really, what's happening, Fred and David, is you know, sort of by accident, you're buying low and selling high. I don't want to overplay that, but when you when you hear what's just been described, we bought we had to increase our position in stocks when they were thirty five percent lower than they are today. And now, because of the V recovery in the stock market, which nobody, I didn't think it would happen, um, suddenly we're in a position where we have to sell some of the things we bought, maybe not the very same things we bought in the aggregate. Now we're selling that asset class uh, at the same time. Hey, we have Joe. We have a few minutes. We're going to go to Joe on line two. Yes, Joe. Yeah, I'd like to keep this short, but uh, I know you're running out of time, but I'd like to thank David as far as... Uh rebalancing my account it took uh took you years to get me to try to balance my account paul and uh when this when all this happened all i was thinking about doing was selling some of my bonds and buying some more stock and i called david about it and uh he said that he wouldn't really recommend that right now and i look back thinking that if i'd done it yeah i might have made a little more money but uh I don't think I'd ever get balanced again, and I think that's one of the reasons that uh, I appreciate all you guys in, uh, down there, and I appreciate the service. So I just wanted to call and 
give Dave some prompts on that. And uh, thank you both again. All right. Well, that's kind of you. Thanks. Yeah, there you go, Dave. You have yeah. one fan. Yeah, uh, for for <laughs> David and so on. Uh, it takes some skill too because uh, it's easier to rebalance in a, in a tax deferred or, or a non-taxable account than it is on the other because you don't generate capital gains. So it's, it's not just a matter of choosing at random. You have to choose the right uh, assets. That's a good point, Dave. In a couple of minutes, how do you do that at the household level? Because sometimes you can create taxes, sometimes you don't. Kind of what's the yeah. blocking and tackling? If people have a variety type of accounts, you know, to the extent possible, I try to do the rebalancing in retirement accounts just to avoid triggering, you know, capital gains and stuff like that. But sometimes, you know, triggering taxes is unavoidable. And I do think that sometimes people will let that prevent them from rebalancing, especially, you know, when it's selling after the market has gone up and there's especially capital gains built in. But if that's what it takes to rebalance your account, you don't want to let the tax tail wag the dog, as I put it, you know, you need the most important thing is having an investment allocation that is suited to your goals and then minimize taxes within that constraint. But you don't want taxes dictating your, your portfolio decisions or preventing you from sticking to the allocation that is appropriate for you. So like I said, to the extent possible, do it in your retirement accounts. But if it's not possible, then you just have to um, try to minimize taxes as much as possible when you're trading. So, you know, a lot of custodians now will just let you choose the most tax-efficient method for selling um, the actual lots or specific shares of holdings in taxable accounts. So that's just something to look into if if you have a, a taxable investment account. Okay. I mean, that's, you know, just I guess the importance is really you have to have rules. You have to have discipline. And that's what I'm hearing is basically it's it's about – you do it because that's what your rules are. It's sensible. And there ha if without the discipline, and rebalancing is just one form of the discipline it takes to become a successful investor, uh, sometimes it's, it's getting, keeping clients from doing things that they want to do. And now sometimes they'll look back and wish they did it, uh, but, but, but I think you know, what they end up appreciating is, yeah, well, maybe I would have been lucky that time, but I'm glad I have somebody who has discipline it has rules that they're following instead of instead of us bobbing like a you know a, a aimless cork in the ocean. <laughs> right. Fred? I mean, the most important thing is that you don't rebalance based on hunches or market forecasts. So the trap you can fall into is people turn it into a market timing exercise, and that's why, like you said, it's very important to have objective, rules-based rebalancing strategy. And, uh, again, that's just what we do, and we're not the only advisors that do that. I don't want to claim that I have the territory on that. Well, Fred, who knows what's going to happen between now and the next show, the second right. Tuesday of July? I can't believe it. No, I uh, think we, uh, June is still there. Oh, that's right. We have one more in June. Uh, see, I'm getting ready to go on vacation for a little right. bit. I'm already in vacation mode, Fred. Maybe I'll just let you do the show, right. and <laughs> you and David. Probably a better show. Well, anyway, we appreciate everybody listening. Thanks for the calls today. They were wonderful. Thanks for the comments, and thanks for the uh, compliments. Um, we try to earn them. And I agree, and I think Fred would agree, optimism is the only worldview that squares with the facts. We'll be back in two weeks. Dr. Fred Gertz, David Rudy, and who knows who by then. Thanks for listening to Paul Rudy's On the Money. Back in two weeks. Join us for the second and fourth Tuesday of each month for Paul Rudy's On the Money. 
Views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. This is News Talk 1400, WDWS, Champaign-Urbana.